The blueberry industry is like no other. Passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the production, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Well, there's no question that when consumers wanted to fill their freezers during this pandemic, many of them bought frozen blueberries. This has been great to see, but what does it mean for the frozen blueberry markets and supply chains going forward? We have on the show two fantastic guests today to talk about this topic. John Shelford is a consultant to the industry and a strategic advisor to Nature Right Value Added Foods. Also joining us is Kimberly Chambers, who is the Director of Business Development and Sustainability at RainSuite based in Oregon. John, Kimberly, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you, Casey. Well, it's great to have you both. I'm encouraged to bring this topic forward if not by John alone, his encouragement since I've been a part of the organization has been, you know, the point of priority that Frozen is in our industry. So let's start a little, uh, diving a little bit deeper to each of your backgrounds. John, I know you've been around this industry a long time. Maybe you can share with our audience what led you to this place you're in today. Well, it's been 44 years. And when I joined the blueberry industry, I hardly knew what a blueberry was from up in the Northeast. Uh, and uh, Frozen berries were really a relatively minor product. Many of the processed berries were sold to canneries, and they were canned either as pie filling or water packs or syrup packs. And uh, that was in the late 70s. And by the mid-80s, we saw a real robust frozen industry developing, going into pie manufacturing and uh, other products. Retail poly bag actually really began in that time period in the frozen category. but. Um, so it's been quite a journey. 2000 was a real turning point with antioxidant messages. And today, the uh, North American frozen industry is really centered in the northwest of U.S., with about 80% of the pack being out there in Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia. The wild industry has grown tremendously since then as well. And so we've seen a real dynamic change uh, and with imports from uh, offshore although the imports have been far more on the fresh side than they have in the frozen side. And I know considering your role on the promotion, USHBC promotion committee, you've been on that committee now for? Well, probably for 20 years, almost since the origin of uh, USHBC, I believe. Yeah, always uh, counting on John to wave the flag for frozen in those promotion activities, really someone I've relied on since I've been here to give me some perspective on you know, how the frozen industry works in relationship to our job. But also, Kimberly, you and I talked about kind of our relationship of both being new to the industry. Your uh, first uh, opportunity to participate with the USHBC was down in San Diego in 2019. So maybe talk a little bit about your background there with RainSuite. Yeah, I've just been at RainSuite two years this December. And uh, I have to say the frozen blueberry industry has been incredibly warm and inviting and welcoming and only being there two years, but getting to get to know John and so many other people who have really mentored me has been really a good example of what the industry is like. So before Rain Suite, I was at Organically Grown Company, which is a distributor and wholesaler based in Portland and Eugene, also have some warehouses in Washington State. 
And I quickly advanced from a sustainability manager position there to a program manager, uh, supply chain and sustainability, and helped lead the investigation or the analysis and then the implementation of a small fruit packing line. And that was primarily for blueberries. So really quickly got to know the fresh blueberry industry and a number of the people who I now work with directly in frozen as well because of those relationships between frozen and fresh. It's pretty fluid. So that's where my blueberry world kind of began, but just lots of years working in food and agriculture. Well, fantastic. Great to have you both here. And maybe we could spend a little time about how frozen blueberries, the market change over the years. How have you each seen it evolve from your perspective? Well, I think that's a that's an interesting question. There really, I, I'd suggest we went from, in the initial time, uh, a lot of farm packers, what we would call carton frozen, case frozen product is kind of how the product first started being frozen. IQF was minimal at that point. And then IQF today is uh, basically what you sell, what you pack. If you're packing case frozen, it's discounted significantly. So that's been a major change. I think as far as utilization of the product is concerned, there's been you know, a number of uh, various channels. The retail poly bag channel began finding some shelf space in the 80s. I was actually involved with Big Valley, which is that he then sold the Dole. The bakery's always been fairly sizable with pies. And of course, pies today are much less. Pie fillings are replaced, which was not a frozen product. It was a, a canned product. But then today, the dairy, we've seen the yogurt business. The yogurt business didn't exist essentially back in the uh, early 80s. And today, yogurt is a huge user of blueberries in the fruit preserve basis. The yogurt manufacturers don't buy it. You don't sell to Danon typically or Shabanti. You sell to a preserver and they sell to the uh, yogurt company who puts it into the yogurt base. Uh, dried, the dried business has developed all in the last, uh, I'll say, 20 years. You see, we've seen that, and that all comes from frozen feedstock to, uh, for doing the drying. So, we clearly have seen the uh, business, the volumes have grown. Uh, it's the numbers that I ran earlier. Uh, we've had an 8% annual growth rate on an average for the uh, frozen pack. And uh, we had tremendous price variations until the last five years. It's kind of leveled out between 85 cents and a dollar. We've seen prices as high as $2.10 back in 2006. And growers would only uh, wish for that today. <laughs> and I know it won't be the same perspective from you, Kimberly, in terms of the tenure there that John's got, but I still think it'd be interesting for our audience to hear from your perspective coming at this, you know, relatively new, what you've seen, certainly maybe affirming some of what John's talking about, and then, you know, how that has changed and as you see, continue to change. Well, I think it's really great to hear John express how much change has occurred just by the things that he's highlighted. Because, you know, as I mentioned, I've only been at RainSuite for two years, and I can't believe how much change we've had already. That said, I hope given COVID and, you know, various other things, these are kind of exceptional years. But before COVID, we had increasing food safety focus in our industry. That's going to continue. We have more and more demand for different certifications, different requirements. I think as the volume increases, our ability to find different niches are requiring that we're more and more specialized in what we're offering. And John knows this well. We go back and forth about all kinds of different factors. 
So I think those are the things that we're seeing really happen is diversification within inventory, expansion of markets, increased food safety focused, and continuous sort of change, right? Like that's really what Casey, you model for us in our meetings as well, is that we can't do what we did five years ago. And I know that's a common business perspective, but it seems like we have to always be innovating and looking forward and being willing to kind of work together to offer new products for new markets. I like to bounce off of what Kimberly said on the food safety issue, Casey. And I, I missed that one. That was a huge change. I was out of the frozen business entirely from 1995 until 2008. During those years, solely focused on fresh. When I moved back into the frozen side of the business in 2008, uh, 2009, the single most difficult area that I wrestled with every day was the food safety requirements of frozen that we never even heard of in fresh. And I still say, man, the fresh guys have a cakewalk as it regards food safety versus us who are selling frozen. And the uh, certifications, the uh, plant audits, the micro uh, screens we must do, we can't pack product today and ship it tomorrow. We have to pack product today and send to the lab for pathogen screens. It takes us at least a week to be able to ship a packed product. Fresh guys, pack it today, ship it tomorrow. Uh, that's the <laughs> so the food. Thanks, Kimberly. That was a huge one that I wrestled with often and still do. <laughs> I think you're just blocking it out, John. You're like, no, don't make me think about that. Because, you know, and related to what John's saying as well, it's our export, right? Like the frozen export markets, just listening to kind of my experience was fresh before frozen. And I, I again, I can't believe how easy fresh has it, just like John's saying. But related with the frozen market, it's not just the changing MRL requirements, it's also the changing politics, right? And the changing trade agreements. And just always trying to look ahead and kind of be prepared and be nimble enough to make sure that we don't lose those key customers in some of those markets with these changes as well. You know, it's almost like we could set aside a food safety conversation relative to all the changes that we're continuing to see and, and will continue to see. And but first, let's take a quick break for our crop report. During this time of year, we get reports coming in from important blueberry growing regions like Mexico, Peru, and Chile. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. It's time now for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry areas around the globe. Today, you'll hear from Andres Armstrong in Chile, as well as Juan Soria Morales in Mexico. This was recorded on December 2nd, 2020. Hello everyone, this is Andres Armstrong from, from Chile. I'm with the report on week 47. Uh, the northern zone of Chile is already in the final third of the season. Until week 46, the accumulated volumes of the northern regions add up 24% more than the previous seasons up to the same date. Meanwhile, the central zone is picking up pace, while the south central zone is still focused in orchards and the tunnels. However, the accumulated volume is lower than the previous season, which shown a little bit early progress compared to a normal year. With the above, there were 2.3 million pounds exported in week 46 and an accumulated of 8.4 million pounds uh, to, to the date. With a 3% progress of the season so far compared to the estimate, and 8% less volume compared to the previous season up to the same date. So this is our report from Chile this week. Thank you very much. Uh, this is uh, the report for Mexico. My name is uh, Juan Soria Morales, a representative 
from Anneberries. The report includes information from week 48. Uh, last week, production was 20% higher than expected due to two factors. First, weather conditions remain very good for production in central Mexico. Second, new varieties like Ventura come into production with better yields than the remaining stream of Biloxi. In week 48, Mexico exported a total of 1,810,000 pounds. Of those pounds, 1,705,000 went to the North American market. Season total Mexico exports are 6,725,530 pounds. From those pounds, 6,338,025 pounds have been exported to the United States. Compared to last season, the volume exported to the United States is 9% higher than the 2019-2020 season. Uh, that is the report for uh, Mexico. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much to our colleagues from around Latin America who take the time to participate in these crop reports. I've heard some great feedback from many folks who appreciate hearing the continuation of our crop report throughout the year, now coming in from Chile, Peru, and Mexico. So I'm going to come back to uh, our guest, John Shelford and Kimberly Chambers. Uh, Kimberly was just talking about the importance of food safety, and, and I don't want to lose that. And John, we talked about how the frozen market has evolved over the years, but maybe you two could talk a little bit about how you've seen this year go, in particular, its relationship to the global pandemic. Well, certainly, when we made the pivot at the promotion committee to find new alternatives to the budgeting we had, and one of the uh, alternatives we looked at was the purchasing of the scan debt, Nielsen scan debt on the, on the category, both fresh and frozen retail. I think that was important. We bought it, as you know, uh, Casey, and you certainly led the parade on that. We bought it monthly beginning in March and went through June, July. And those monthly numbers, uh, and I'll speak to the frozen, were just amazing. I mean, they were 30% higher. And if I take the category and that's without Costco in it. And you could really annualize that. And so that really represented the 50 to 60 million pound additional consumer demand in that category. And as, as you know, I was pretty excited about what the impact could be on the 2020 contracting period, but it didn't materialize. What happened? <laughs> was kind of the was kind of the question. And, and I think the other thing that happened is during the season, I was looking at some numbers for the, uh, for the total pack of uh, 320 million, 330 million for the high bush and 250 million for the low bush. And it turned out we were 380 for the high bush and we were 215 for the low bush. So we still had about 600 million pounds, which was about the annual disappearance in recent years. Uh, we've got a little bit more than that. But as I said earlier, I think it really shows us how much product is in the system under contract and the buyer has no reason to change what he pays for product until he feels like he's not going to have product. And they were unable to get that sense during this harvest season. They went through July and August with the confidence that we'll pick up the phones we have the last six years and we'll be able to buy one load or 15 loads and we'll do it within 24 hours. Until they pick up the phone and all of a sudden they cannot buy, that's what changes marketplaces. Absolutely. And, and your sense of the same, Kimberly? Yeah, I mean, we, we went to AFI, you know, the same week as the USHBC and ABC meetings in DC. And uh, 
I do remember a couple of customers coming in and saying, don't talk to me about blueberries because blueberries were so long. There was so much inventory available. And then we got back from DC and we went into COVID and the first few weeks, probably the first few months of COVID were a marathon for a lot of us. Um, the demand just escalated rapidly. I think a number of big retailers got pretty smart and started realizing that the inventory was going to be pulled. They needed to get poly line time secured. They needed to get supply secured. And it's been a steady, good run since. I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see also what Fresh has done. I agree completely with what John says is it takes the buyers a little bit longer. And I think one of the reasons is because we keep talking about how much supply is increasing, how much more volume there is, how much more volume is coming on. And that messaging, unless you're a discerning buyer and you know the difference between organic and conventional and, you know, how much of that is likely to be A grade and end up into poly and, you know, different varieties and how they pack and what the markets are. You just think it's kind of all the same and the volume will be there for you when you need it. Just a reference that data poll that John was talking about, you know, it was this moment in time, I think, coming out of those March meetings, uh, you know, you're referencing the USHBC and NABC meetings in Washington, D.C., where we were giving a promotion presentation that was different than what we ended up running into in the changed world environment that we found after we left D.C. But fortunately, you know, we had put some dollars in place budget-wise to start pulling data down for the industry and the Nielsen reports. Uh, we started pulling each month by week and positioning that out for the industry. And obviously, lots of uh, people have are aware of it, pulled it, or being able to use it. But it just showed you, it was a moment in time where it didn't matter who you were in this industry, you didn't know what was going to happen next. And you know, part of our decision to pull Nielsen data to kind of track both fresh and frozen at the grocery store was we were in a level playing field for what the next day was going to bring. You know, there was no algorithm. There wasn't any buying history from the previous year that you could necessarily compare against. So I just think that, you know, your explanation of that need to secure poly bag lines and just, it wasn't a remarkable time and you can see it in these numbers. And one of the businesses that Kimberly's company is in is the poly, they're doing a lot of poly bagging and the they needed to get the fruit converted from a 30 pounder into a poly bag. That business was just every poly bagging equipment in the country was at full bore, but the feedstock was there. And I'm just looking at the USDA cold storage report right now, which is, I spent a lot of time on that, but in May of 2020, just four months ago, the low cold storage number was 166 million. It's the highest low number we'd ever had. The prior low number had been 148 million in May, June of 2017, three years ago. So what that tells me is out of 166 million, I just mentioned I, I saw an annualized increase of 50 million pounds. Well, that 50 million pounds was already in the barn. It was already in the cold storage and was ready there to, to pull. And so that's some of the things that take place. And let me remind another thing is that cold storage numbers represent about 25% of the total pack. So you can take that number and multiply it by four to get a realization of what may be setting out there in cold storages around the countryside. Much of it may be in customers' names. It's already transferred. It's no longer in the packer's name. It's, it's moved on, but it's still not moved into the retail channel. It's not going to a retail poly bag. It's not going into a yogurt base. It's not going into a muffin. It's not going into the drying. It still sets there as a frozen product. So that's why that USDA cold storage number is, 
I say it's one of the best numbers we have for regression analysis because it's one of the numbers that continually provides an index of where relative supplies are in the industry. And I talk to the gal at USDA quite often. Whenever there's a blip, I call her. And actually this year, we had a big change between the preliminary August number and the final number. And she says, John, I've been waiting for your call. I knew you'd call me on that (laughs) as to what happened. She can tell you, look, I had a new cold storage chart reporting never reported before. Or she can say, somebody got behind, didn't report, and they come in and corrected it. She can't tell me anything about who, who it is, what, where they're at, but she can give me enough information to say there was a significant deviation from standard. Uh, some people second-guess me or say I'm, I put too much faith in the cold storage report, and maybe I do, but I've learned that it's a pretty good indicator of what, what will take place. I noticed he's got us back into this cold storage report conversation. <laughs> you know, I think the one of the conversations that John and I have, like jokingly, right, is like, well, what if the volume is contracted and what's not, right? And then also, what is the volume that's in cold storage? So coming into COVID and in sort of those early weeks of frenzy, that was primarily for A-grade fruit, right? And some of your polypackers could be flexible. They could take lower grades. They could you know, takes things that weren't necessarily all larges and do a little bit more work with them. I think where we might be seeing inventory lingering on is with the food service industry, right? So those secondary and sometimes tertiary processors who are turning something like into a blueberry syrup that may be getting used in restaurants, that's where maybe that inventory isn't moving quite as fast as we're seeing some of the other volume move. Well, this has been a great discussion. We're going to take a quick break for our marketing boost segment. We'll be back with John and Kimberly in a moment. But now here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communication, Jennifer Sparks. Thanks, Casey, and holiday greetings to all of you as we head into the season of giving, reflection, and cooking and entertaining. Granted, holiday festivities will look different this year. People may be gathering just within their own family or a smaller circle of friends, but they will still look for fun and interesting ways to create a warm, cozy, connected feel to the holiday season. This pandemic has made people wanting more innovative ideas to break out of the monotony, and that usually comes in the form of creating delicious meals, small plates, charcuterie boards, and cocktails. So let's make sure blueberries get on those shopping lists. Social media is a great way to entice and inspire people to use blueberries in different ways by posting recipes and tips on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with visuals that garner attention. Even on LinkedIn, for those of us in the blueberry industry, providing a timely recipe can be an appropriate post of informative educational content. And USHBC makes it easy for you. We've done the work on the content. You just need to share it. Go to blueberrycouncil.org and you can find recipes, cooking advice, and food pairings. Just share a link directly to the content you want and add a custom caption by you, and voila, you've provided your audience with usable educational information and eye-catching images. And they'll appreciate you for it, for the holidays and beyond. This has been your Marketing Boost. Thank you for your partnership, as together we inspire the world to experience the amazing benefits of blueberries. And now, back to you, Casey. All right. Thanks, Jenny. Now back to our conversation with John and Kimberly. You know, thinking about the 
audience that's listening, appreciating the complication of these cold storage numbers, as the new person kind of trying to figure out, do I need to be a John Shelford to kind of put the finger in the air and indicate like using indexing? And that's great if you've got the 10 year of experience that he has to be able to call it indexing. But for the rest of us mere mortals who have to come into this industry, maybe Kimberly, you can talk about like, how do you do this? Like, how do you come into this business and make sense of how what John's talking about makes anybody feel comfortable about what the next day brings? Well, okay. So I remember the first time I met John was with Mark at Affy and we had this wonderful long conversation with John. We came out of it. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said to Mark, who is John's protege? Who is he training to do what he does? And now I'm hoping it's not me. That's all. So we'll just talk about that in terms of indexing. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a lot of fun though, Kimberly. <laughs> I do like my data, but oh. <laughs> how do we fix this? I mean, you know, we've got John and, and to the extent that he'll always be available to us, but this, this can't be how we keep building on what we've been doing. So, you know, for those people that I know probably are, are hearing us talk about this situation, what do we say to everybody about what could be done differently or better to improve what you do every day, Kimberly? Again, it's kind of like John, and I have been a real benefactor of all of the people in the industry who are willing to talk to me. And I, you know, John, I'm guessing that that's actually where a lot of your insight comes from too. It's being on the phone with people who are willing to share ideas and share information. And there are a few key people who have just been so gracious with me in, in helping me understand information. And Mark is a wealth of knowledge, right? And being able to vet stuff with him and bounce things back and forth with him. But these are the things within our industry that I'm not sure you can replicate or how you would be able to replicate them. It is heavily relationship-based. And it's actually one of the things that I get pretty excited about when I go to the meetings is seeing the next generations in the rooms, right? It's seeing Ellie Norris. It's seeing Derek Isley. It's seeing the Kramers. It's seeing all of these next generation of people who are coming along and will have those relationships moving forward. So how do you serve them? That's, that's really a big part of it. So I'm hearing you say that you need to be a nice person and you have to get along with a lot of people because, you know, the traditional tools of being able to go on Google and figure out what's going on is not going to afford you the opportunity to be successful. You have to work together at this point to gather the kind of information that drives this industry. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's, what is it? It's the consultative approach to sales, right? Like it's relationships first. It's have the conversation. It's get to understand what your customer needs. And, you know, a customer for us at RainSuite, that also means our farmers. It really has to work for the full system. And there's so much teeter-tottering back and forth and trying to find a way because we in the middle have the infrastructure that's necessary to kind of keep your sales, your retail customers and all of your consumers happy as well as trying to support the farmers on the other side. Interesting. I mean, and maybe to the point of how cold storage and the reporting works and it's a relationship game, it, it comes to that question uh, that I might ask Kimberly first before John, and you can include the cold storage report by all means, because part of what I was hearing coming out of the pandemic was people scrambling for A grade going, how are the cold storage reports reflecting such a high volume and I can't find A grade? I don't have an answer to that. And I'm not on the phone like you both are, but if you could wave a wand and make this better, Kimberly, what does it look like? I do believe I heard you say that there's going to be a frozen task force 
that comes out, right? And I was very, very happy to hear that. I think that's a great place to start if it hasn't started already. And I think that task force, some of the things they need to do is start by looking at what data is available, right? And then what data do we need? So magic wand, right? No competition aside, what's the pack, right? Like what is the pack that we have? How much volume went into Frozen this year? And what did it pack out at? What percent is A grade? What percent is juice grade? What percent is other? Because if USHBC and ABC had that kind of that kind of knowledge, then you know where your main focus of market development needs to be, I think. And then you're going to have to differentiate that between organic and conventional. And as much as that can sometimes be a tension within the organization, we need to talk about both. Absolutely. And what makes that an opportunity or totally unrealistic in your mind, John? You know, have we hit a place where what you're calling on in terms of it's not self-serving. I think it's in the interest of everybody to want to see the value of blueberries remain high throughout time. But, you know, what is it going to take? Is it at all possible for the kind of coordination that you're seeing amongst three major stakeholders on the wild side be united in a way that would benefit the high bush side? Well, certainly I've had Bimrick uh, in California for California Fresh is a uh, it's hard to find a distractor about that program. When you talk to packers, you talk to growers, you talk to shippers, there's a fairly uh, uniform chorus of compliments to what that program's doing for the industry. So if I, I guess if you would, if you go back and say the way the magic wand, it would be a Bimerick program for the uh, high bush processed uh, industry that would cover uh, U.S. production and Canada production areas and Probably you've got to throw into that as well, <laughs> Chile and Argentina and Peru, although they're not nearly the volume contributor here as uh, the other one. So I think I'm not a particular fan of volunteer programs, uh, and folks that know that. I've been pretty quiet as they try to do some volunteer programs. Don't put me into a program where I'm tempted to lie, where I'm tempted to put something down that I really don't feel good about. And when the report comes across my desk, is, uh, and I've been in that desk, I've been sitting in that seat for a lot of years. So I'm, I'm pretty careful about volunteer programs in this area because they work well when the market's good. But when the market starts getting soft and sloppy and I own 10 million pounds or my production, all of a sudden I forecasted 15 million, I'm packing 20. Do I really want to tell the industry, I'm packing 20, or do I stay at the 15? And if I don't have to, so I get tempted to start shaving my numbers. That's just human nature. I'm sorry. And so that's been kind of the reason, that is not kind of, that is the reason I've not, I'm not a particular fan of voluntary programs. And yet I think the BIMRIC program can do a tremendous amount for processing as it has for the fresh industry, but I think it's probably a long shot as well. <laughs> Well, this has been a great conversation. For now, I just really appreciate both of your time and kind of giving us insights on your perspective and you know what's going on in, in the frozen industry right now and certainly perspective over time. There's so much more to come for our industry, especially when it relates to you know what we could do differently in order to understand ourselves better, to position ourselves, to have those opportunities. So I, I, again, I, I really think you guys have you know hit on a, an important piece in our industry work. 
your representation in these discussions when we get together as, as a meeting. And hopefully, I don't overwhelm your phone lines with uh, the sense that people have probably from this podcast that you're open and willing for discussion as uh, friendly folks in our industry, friendly leaders who have helped guide us to this point and uh, will continue to help us look forward to the future. So thank you both for your time today. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. It's been really fun. And we'll do it again. All right. <laughs> that was a great conversation with John and Kimberly. And I think there are some great takeaways from this episode. There always are. But a few that come to mind, you know, in a relationship to the frozen conversation is, you know, certainly surrounding the impact that the pandemic has had on this category and the challenge it's faced, you know, in light of frozen, you know, the, the data issue that we discussed. It's something that I don't think can be underestimated as to what difference it could have made to be able to see a little bit better into that cold storage on what opportunities were for us to move that fruit in ways that could have been either predicted or prevented, uh, depending on how you look at it. So I think just hearing the two of them talk about their experience with it was helpful and, and certainly getting their insights on how that transition took place in their world during that shutdown period. And then, of course, what we see in the data. And data if we keep bringing this up at every podcast, you know, don't be surprised because it just seems to be this theme of things that our industry needs, our growers, to our packers, to our marketers, and to our retailers. It just helps us to understand ourselves better than ever if we can see things from a, a bunch of different vantage points. But being able to collect information, and I really enjoyed what uh, John said about, you know, the challenge of collecting it if it's not mandatory. And that really is a challenge and, and something that we're going to continue to look into, you know, as we go forward from here as USHBC. Another thing that I think also can't be understated as it relates to the nature of this business and its relationships amongst each other. You can hear the camaraderie there on, on the interview with John and, and Kimberly, but you know that's just a, a sample example of what I've experienced in this business and certainly the expectation I know that's out there that you know if you're part of the blueberry industry, you're part of a family that is willing to freely pass information on and in the case that they talked about the future generation, the commitment that there is to continue to encourage the success over time. Uh, and I also just want to you know, acknowledge the fact that there is an effort by USHBC to focus in on the frozen part of our business that is going to be extremely important going forward. We're seeing it in the discussions we're having at Food Service and the need to kind of continue to dig into how we can move fruit, move the pile, so to speak, in the frozen category. So it's a task force that's being looked at to be formed and, and you know, help us better inform what opportunities still yet lie ahead for the industry. Well, that's it for episode 24. I just want to take a moment here to thank all of our listeners for listening to this podcast over the course that we've had it. We just crossed a milestone of our 20th podcast, but just as importantly, it's the individuals that are listening who are finding this valuable and, and valuable over time. And we've had over 6,500 downloads since we launched this uh, podcast. And we just could be more grateful for the response and the feedback that we're getting from all of you who are helping us make this uh, podcast a success and better over time as we keep going here. So we want to thank you for listening today. And if you found this uh, podcast, this episode insightful, please share it on your social media along with the blueberry emoji. Make sure that you uh, tell someone to tune in today. So thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries.